Hi there, I'm Rory O'Connor, Professor of Health Psychology and a Mental Health Researcher at the University of Glasgow. And I'm Craig, a filmmaker and content creator at MQ Mental Health Research. And welcome to MQ Open Mind, a podcast that brings together lived experience with scientific research to help us to better understand mental health problems. And we hope to do so in a way that is accessible to all. In this episode, we speak to MQ researcher and academic clinical fellow at the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Oxford, Dr. Maxim Teke. Originally trained to become an engineer, Maxim made the change to mental health research. Maxim's current research is on the effects of COVID, specifically brain fog. In this conversation, we discuss the long-term effects of COVID on the brain, why certain people develop brain fog, and how to effectively use large datasets. Welcome to the latest episode of MQ's Open Mind. Craig and I are delighted today. We've got another fascinating guest. We've got uh, Max Tiquet, who is an academic clinical fellow at the uh, Department of Psychiatry at the University of Oxford. So welcome, Max, to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, welcome in. So what we're, lo- what we're looking forward to is we're going to get into the detail of some of the work, the fascinating work you've been doing on COVID. But what we always try and start off with is to sort of give our guests a bit of a, a sense of who you are. She you tell us a bit about your your background and how you got into working in, in, in psychiatry and the work that you do? Sure. So I am um, I'm, I'm originally an engineer. I guess that's to them. So I I graduated in engineering from the University of Louvain in Belgium, Um, and then I got passionate about about research, and I I did a PhD in in brain imaging, and I was uh, mostly at the Boston Children's Hospital in the the US as part of Harvard Medical School. And there I was sort of developing techniques um, for brain imaging, so doing the nerdy side of, uh, of brain imaging, if I can put it that way. And I was applying that to to some uh, cohorts of, of patients, but I had no idea what those who those patients were. And I, I thought it was a bit frustrating, so I decided to go on and study medicine. And that's what brought me to the UK, where I studied medicine as a graduate entry um, medical student in Oxford. And then I, I became increasingly interested in 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 the brain and its association with behavior and how we can sort of measure those type of things and how that relates to individual experiences of patients. Uh, and that's what led me to do a career in, in or start a career in, in, in clinical psychiatry with a strong interest for research. Great. And so in terms of, um, I was reading, doing some reading about or one of your interests previously, and you have an interesting view on the role of diagnoses and, and, and obviously the reliability and validity of them. So do you want to tell us about some of the work you've been doing in that regard before we get into details of the COVID work? Sure. Yeah. So I think diagnoses in, in psychiatry are not made um, based on, on tests or blood tests or even scans. They're basically based on a collection of symptoms. And unfortunately, that means that oftentimes the uh, the diagnoses that we make are not necessarily reliable. And by that we mean, we don't necessarily mean that what we're telling patients is, is wrong or is not helpful. But um, the label we give patients might be different uh, depending on which psychiatrist we are. So whereas some psychiatrists might give a patient a diagnosis of depression, another one might give them a diagnosis of anxiety, and a third one might give them a diagnosis of mixed anxiety and depression, as it's sometimes called. That doesn't really matter for patients because the treatment is very much the same, both for psychological treatment, but also medical treatment uh, or or pharmacological treatments or drugs. But that means that for research, 
um, that 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 can cause problems. Um, obviously, when we try to find biomarkers of of illnesses, for instance, psychiatric illnesses, we tend to think that the diagnostic label is the ground truth. This is what we need to find a biomarker a biomarker that correlates perfectly with. And it's it's probably unlikely to ever be the case if we rely on diagnoses that are themselves not reliable. And sort of early um, research interest of mine is is and, and of many people is is in um, moving away from those those simple diagnostic categories. And, and I suppose that also reflects the complexity of, of mental illness and the fact that patients, even though they can identify with a, a label, they know that their life and their experience is much more complex than this simple label. Uh, I know you said there that, yeah, the label itself, right, so it doesn't necessarily inform or make a difference to the treatment. You use the example, obviously, of anxiety versus depression or mixed anxiety and depression. But I wonder, is the question more fundamental is... Of course, uh, diagnoses are a collection of symptoms, but is there just so much heterogeneity that actually the diagnoses in and of themselves will become meaningless in time or will we have such a fine grained or over over time, you just you'll be treating symptoms rather than diagnoses. Yes, so that's one way of one way of, of seeing it. There might be a lot of heterogeneity. To some extent, there's also a lot of homogeneity. And I think that's what some of the uh, neurobiological findings are pointing to, where we find that um, there are brain networks, for instance, that do not correlate with specifically depression or specifically schizophrenia or specifically anxiety, but do correlate quite strongly with the presence of of a mental illness. Mm-hmm. So it's both sort of homogeneity and heterogeneity which yeah. um, we need to, uh, I suppose, embrace. Yeah, because I've always been surprised that we haven't made the progress when, when the, the human genome was mapped with all these asp- hopes and, and expectations that we've been making all these strides forward, which we just haven't made yet, have we? No, well, I, th- I think it, it reflects how complex those those yeah. disorders are um, and how much, because we, we're talking about the biological aspects here, but obviously the psychological and social aspects are just as complex. And so we need to very much embrace that complexity, uh, try to capture it, try to quantify it, try to measure it in order to, in order to, uh, I suppose, make great progress in characterizing and then treating those those disorders. Yeah, not that well, we're not making any progress, we are making progress. Obviously. No, I think no, I think we are. But that's the of, yeah, I just no, I just I was at a conference last week and it was raised. Um, it was a suicide conference and and just actually a number of the speakers raised this as a fundamental issue that we were were reflecting on the field how our field had developed or hadn't developed in the last 20 or 25 years and it just came up time and again a lot of people had put their eggs in that human genome basket and of course recognizing of course the biopsychosocial nature of mental health presentations um but no i think we are definitely making progress and hopefully we'll continue to just on that note then Max, let's take us into the the fascinating work that you have been doing in uh, on covid so we'll, we'll move We'll move it in sort of two parts. The first bit, because remember saying your the Sequelae paper in Lancet Psychiatry in 2021, the FOSS COVID studies, isn't that right? Do you want to tell us a bit about that study and then what he's found in that initial really important findings at the really early days in COVID? I think it was at the end of 21, I think that paper was published and it was was it the first six months effectively or, or 12 months of looking at people's recovery. So could you tell us a bit about that? Because that really is really important work. Well, absolutely. So um, the the first the initial first study that was not I was not involved in, but uh, they certainly have um, highlighted quite highlighted quite clearly that um, a lot of people after they've been hospitalised with with COVID nineteen 
do, do carry on having um, uh, symptoms or go on to have some symptoms uh, that affect different parts of the body, right? that might affect their breathing, that might affect their ability to exercise, the fatigue, their concentration, um, their mood, etc. And that's also reflected in, in the kind of studies that we've been doing early on in the pandemic, where we've looked at large-scale electronic health records data to try and see whether people with COVID-19 were at an increased risk of, of being diagnosed with um, uh, brain disorders, um, whether it's cognitive problems, depression, anxiety, psychosis, but also strokes, brain hemorrhage, etc., and where we found quite clearly uh, that having COVID-19 was associated with a much greater risk of those disorders than having something like like the flu, and so that sort of um, um, led to people becoming more and more interested in understanding why it might be that uh, people who have COVID-19, that uh, that infection caused by by a small virus, SARS-CoV-2, why is it that this small virus can cause brain problems? And why is it? <laughs> I suppose that's an open question, but but that's a question to which we, we are starting to find answers. There, there's always been a few hypotheses, uh, and those have been expressed by people who have great expertise in the field of uh, infectious diseases and, and sort of neuroscience and neuroinflammation and neurology and psychiatry. And, and so those hypotheses were that um, it might, there might be a degree of inflammation. Uh, that might affect the brain. We know that neuroinflammation, inflammation in the brain can cause a variety of problems, including things like um, uh, cognitive problems. Um, there was the there was the blood clot hypothesis, which is that we know that people who have COVID-19 are to, at an increased risk of having blood clots in different parts of their body. And that includes their lungs, obviously, but that also includes their, their brain. Um, and that's reflected what, we, what we've seen in terms of the epidemiology of, of strokes after COVID-19. Um, and it might well be that um, clots in the brain might cause things like cognitive problems. And then there is those other hypotheses, just an autoimmune response or the virus um, um, staying dormant in, in different parts of the body, perhaps even the brain. Um, and uh, and then uh, and then the virus activating or reactivating previous infections. So all of those were hypotheses, um, and very valid and, and interesting and important hypotheses. And now we're starting to have the data, I suppose, helps put forward some some of those hypotheses. Not saying that the other ones are wrong, but saying that um, certainly some of them have have now some empirical evidence to back them up. How much is someone's surroundings play a part in the effects? So, so I, I suppose, as with with everything in health, um, it's it's always a, a combination of some biological mechanisms and and contextual factors. It, it, you know, where you start before the COVID nineteen your COVID nineteen illness is going to influence how much you recover from it. Uh, that's um, I suppose uh, quite obvious for, for for all diseases, and it's certainly true as well for for COVID nineteen. And 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 one important interesting question is is to try to understand why is it that even people who start with a great, as we might call it, reserves, cognitive reserves or physical reserve, might still go on to have complicated and complicated causes of, of the illness. Um, so I'm thinking about some patients I've seen where, you know, they used to run a business very successfully and, and then have COVID-19 and then find it very difficult to recover. And then uh, six months or 12 months down the line, they are still not able to do the simple tasks that are required of somebody uh, who's running a business, such as basic arithmetics, for instance, or simple concentration. Um, and so this is this is in of itself a very interesting and, and uh, peculiar phenomenon and clearly has dramatic consequences for some of those patients who are uh, affected. I'm just also curious and what the, the bi-directional paper you've published in Lancet Psychiatry as well, because again, 
because a number of studies have found this then obviously the both the uh, obviously COVID-19 dependent severity obviously predicts psychological outcome or psychiatric outcome but also people with pre-morbid or um, mental health problems are at increased risk of COVID-19 so what so what so what do you think is going on there it's an interesting uh, observation and and I, I suppose we we can speculate about what might be going on there so it's so what we found is that indeed people with um, a history of psychiatric problems or psychiatric um, diagnosis are at an increased risk of having COVID-19 in the first place. Others have also found that there are an increased risk of dying from COVID-19 or having severe consequences from COVID-19. Um, and that COVID-19 itself can then um, lead to increased risks of, of those disorders. So there are, again, there are some, some um, biological, um, plausible biological explanations, including things like inflammation or the impact of mm-hmm. um, psychiatric disorders on the immune system. Again, there's slightly there are also some psychological and social uh, explanations. It's some, it might be sometimes more difficult for people with a psychiatric illness to sort of self-isolate. And so they might have been, mostly at the beginning, they might have been more at risk of catching COVID-19 simply because the risks for them yeah. of being completely isolated was much greater than for, for, for most other people who could sort of probably safely self-isolate for a few months without having detrimental impact on their health or their mental health. Whereas for, for people with severe or, or, or indeed some diagnosed uh, psychiatric disorders, uh, the risks did not outweigh the benefits. Yeah, no, I think it really. I think for all the for lessons we'll learn, I think it's really fascinating to see what we what we will learn in time about that bi- bidirectionality. And but I agree that there's a number of possible hypotheses out there. But okay, so moving on, Max. So you you were doing the standard, not standard, but the big data linkage stuff with COVID nineteen, and then you're funding. I think you get some funding from MQ to do what's known. I think there's the C fogs. Is that the COVID the COVID fog study, brain fog study. So could you maybe tell us a bit about that and what you're doing and what you have found in that in that study? Absolutely. So, so what we identified early on in, in the pandemic and, and many others have found as well is that one specific complications of, of, of COVID-19 is what we might call brain fog or cognitive deficits more generally, not just brain fog which is that this suppose, phenomenon where people after having had COVID-19 have great difficulties concentrating, finding their words, communicating, remembering things, et cetera, et cetera. And this is incredibly impairing uh, for people who are affected. Uh, a lot of them are out of work. Um, they can't go back to work. Um, a lot of them have difficulties in their daily lives outside of work, um, family life, et cetera. All of that requires quite um, um, good cognition. And we found that that was quite specific to COVID-19, more so than things like depression and anxiety, for instance. So when we looked at the data in those large-scale, that we were referring to those large-scale studies, we found that COVID-19 cognitive deficit was one of those very specific Mm -hmm. um, complications of COVID-19. And so we we thought that we would have a deeper dive into it, try to better understand why is it that some people with COVID-19 go on to have those cognitive problems. Um, and this is what we've been able to do with the generous funding from, from MQ is, is looking at in greater detail at um, what might be happening during the acute infection, what kind of biological mechanism we can measure at the time, which predicts um, the risk of developing uh, cognitive problems in six months and 12 months after the infection. And what stage is that? in that study so that study has now been published so that well i suppose the first part has been has been published in, in nature medicine uh, last month um, so on 31st of august and um and what we found uh, then is that there are there were some biomarkers during the acute infections 
which predicts cognitive problems six to 12 months down the line. Uh, and those markers were um, fibrinogen and D-dimer. Those are two protein or protein fragments, which, which are uh, known to be increased for a range of reasons. And, uh, but the two main reasons why they are, they are raised are um, inflammation and, and, and coagulation, so blood clotting. But what we also found is that those two profiles of biomarkers were also associated with low or normal CRP. And CRP or C-reactive protein is a protein which is raised almost invariably when there is inflammation. So the fact that we found that fibrinogen and D-dimer were raised in the absence of the corresponding raise in CRP pointed to, well, suggested to us that this was due to um, coagulation of blood clotting rather than inflammation. And, and this, we believe, has, has given more support to, to the blood clotting hypothesis yeah. of, of, of uh, brain fog and cognitive problems. Do we know, first of all, what percentage of people experience brain fog? And then secondly is, so what, what are the treatment implications then of your findings? So to answer your first question, no, we don't really. Um, and so it all depends on how we, how do, how we define it. Yeah. So one way of defining it is to say, well, among the people with a diagnosis of COVID-19, how many of them go on to have a diagnosis of brain fog, a diagnosis of cognitive problems? So you might say, well, is that even a diagnosis? Are people making the diagnosis? <laughs> yeah. And actually, the people, are, people aren't. But when we looked at those big data sets, and we looked at the kind of diagnostic codes that clinicians were using, um, we found that people were using a kind of diagnostic code which I've never used before, to be honest, which is a sort of cognitive problems. I can't remember the exact name, but it's something along the lines of cognitive problems not otherwise specified. Mm -hmm. So when clearly realize that something is not quite right with, with the patient they have in front of them, they, are, they certainly have something going on within their brain, but they couldn't quite name it and pinpoint it. We found that that was the most common diagnostic code that was used by clinicians. If you look at that diagnostic code alongside other more common diagnostic codes, like obviously dementia, delirium, etc., um, we found that one in eight people who have COVID-19 go on to have one such diagnostic code. But that's an underestimate of the number of people with, with brain fog after COVID-19 because it only picks up the people who receive a diagnosis of brain fog, so to speak, yeah. or cognitive problems after COVID-19. Yeah, and have we any sense of, is there something distinct about the brain fog associated with post-COVID rather than other post-viral reactions? Well, we know it's more common. Uh, so that's something we've established using using uh, large-scale epidemiological data. So we know it's it's about 30 to 40% more common in relative terms. And so that's, that's a start. Now, the nature of it remains less clear. I think at the moment, the evidence shows that attention might be one domain where people um, struggle most after COVID-19. That might not necessarily be the same for other infections. So the attention is the ability to sustain a task for a long period of time and to remember enough information for a short amount of time to, to be able to process and, and uh, sim sim simple or more complex cognitive tasks. And so we, we know that that's one domain where it's affected, but we also know that other domains are affected too. Um, and so it's, it's unclear whether the nature of, of brain fog after COVID-19 is, is, is fundamentally different from the brain mm -hmm. fog that we might see in, in other cases. And do we know if, um, I'm firing lots of questions actually, Max, it's, it's a really fascinating area. Do, and in terms of predictors of who will, who's likely to report brain fog? Is it more common in people with <clears throat> previous mental health problems 
uh, or are there other predictors for men or women who, who's more likely to report brain fog? So that's a fascinating and interesting question, and and not least because it's a question that's often answered a bit too succinctly without looking at the nuances, and nuances are very important. So, so that's something we started looking at, um, or that we've looked at in, 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 in a paper that was published last month, where we looked at the predictors of low or, or um, low cognition or, poor, or more cognitive deficits, more cognitive problems uh, in the six months after COVID-19 along two dimensions. So we looked at objective cognitive deficit, and by that I mean um, people scoring lower on a standardized cognitive test called the Montreal Cognitive Assessment that we often use in clinic for screening for dementia, for instance. But we also looked at the predictors of, of um, subjective cognitive deficits, and this is when we simply ask people do you have problems with your memory? Do you have problem with attention? Do you have problem remembering things? Do you have problem communicating? And so we were able to look at the predictors of both those things. And it turns out that the kinds of predictors for one is, are quite different from the kind of predictors for the others. So whereas, you know, having a history of, of things like strokes or uh, cardiac problems, et cetera, was associated with a, an increased risk of objective cognitive deficit, as might be um, quite obvious to people who, who study um, things like vascular dementia. Um, the predictors for subjective cognitive deficit were um, um, more along the lines of the kind of predictors that we see for long COVID. So we know middle-aged um, um, women um, with without um, necessarily a history of stroke, but more with history of things like psychiatric problems those are uh, risk factors for developing subjective cognitive deficits. But interestingly, we found that the P, the P, so, so, so we found that the biomarkers that we were identifying were predicting objective and, and subjective cognitive deficits quite differently. So whereas fibrinogen was mostly a predictor of objective cognitive deficit as well as subjective one, um, D-dimer, which is the other sort of protein fragment associated with hypercoagulation or, or blood clotting, that was mostly associated with subjective cognitive deficit, but not necessarily with, with the presence of objective signs. And that, I guess, sort of in a way breaks the, the myth or the misconception that anything which is subjective can't possibly be biological. Now, there's no rule in nature that says this should be the case. Right? <laughs> um, we know that pain is very much objective. We can't re-objectivize pain. And yet pain is often very much biological. Yeah. And, and, and so we found similar things here um, in our paper. So, but do you have any idea why though one of the markers and not the other was more linked to the subjective? Is there any reasonable biological explanation for why there might be a stronger link with subjective? Say uh, yes. So, so we found um, quite a few other things along this along the same lines, which which points to which which allows us to sort of speculate what mechanism. Those are still very much speculation, but we think that perhaps the fibrinogen. Um, story, so the first sort of dimension that we've identified that's associated with um, objective cognitive deficit and subjective cognitive deficit. We've, we believe that perhaps this is to do with blood clots in the brain, and there's a number of reasons for that, um, but also perhaps for due to the direct effect of fibrinogen on the brain. That's something that I wasn't familiar with. I had to dig uh, deep into the literature, but actually the literature is well and, and quite convincing in that regard, and indeed, back to before the pandemic, where people have identified that fibrinogen can have uh, important impacts on the brain and can cause things like cognitive problems. The D-dimer um, story, story, on the other hand, is, is quite different. One thing that uh, allows us to speculate a bit further is that we've found that people with raised D-dimer who have cognitive problems also have fatigue and shortness of breath at six months. 
And so we suspect that perhaps the D-dimer reflects um, blood clotting in the lungs rather than blood clotting in the, in, in the brain. And that would explain why they have um, a degree of shortness of breath and why they have fatigue. We know that um, blood clots in the lung can cause both, both those things. But it also helps explain why they have subjective cognitive problems without necessarily the, the evidence of, of um, objectives of the objective signs of deficits. And that's because we know that shortness of breath um, and the fatigue that's related to blood clots in the lung can cause a degree of subjective cognitive deficit that sometimes predates the objective signs. So it might be followed up by objective signs, sometimes not. But this is, this is again, a, a fascinating literature, mm. which is back to well before COVID-19 uh, pandemic, and which looks at um, what is subjective cognitive deficit and, and what can cause it. No, it's really interesting. Two very distinct mecha- potential mechanisms there. So in terms of what's your next steps, are you following people up beyond the six months? Yes. So, so one thing that we've been able to do with with the funding from from MQ is is as part of the CFOX study is to look at the cognition of people um, who were part of the first COVID study two years after, approximately two years after the infection. We looked at that in a slightly different way than we looked at it from from the six and twelve month um, uh, time points. Uh, we we asked the participants to complete a battery of online test, online questionnaires called Cognitron, developed by Adam Hampshire at Imperial. Um, and that uh, battery of tests is, is fascinating because unlike the Montreal Cognitive Assessment that we've used before, there's no upper limit, upper, upper bound on the scores that people can have. Now, I, I, I can do a, a, a Montreal Cognitive Assessment score now, and I would probably score 30. If I stop sleeping or if I'm cramming for an exam or if, I'm, um, or if I've had a very long night out um, and I do the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, it's likely that I will still have um, a score of 30 out of 30 because it's quite a straightforward test. Uh, for most people. Now, that doesn't look quite right because obviously my cognition is not as good um, Mm -hmm. after a long night out or after a week of not sleeping much um, compared to what it would be now. And the the um, the Cognitron battery of tests allows to be more sensitive to those small changes, those small differences. And so we hope that uh, not only that would give us more indication or more in- information about what kind of cognitive problems people have, but also perhaps will give us an idea of, of um, the kind of cognitive deficit that people might have um, that are not reflected on, on, on the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, and that might still be perceived by them. And so perhaps we might be able to objectivize the subjective cognitive deficit that we've seen in the first step of the study. Mm, excellent, excellent. What's the space for that one? But see the people in the, in the study, are they getting any, what interventions are they getting? By, who, you've recognized that they're experiencing cognitive, cognitive deficits. Are they getting support? So at the moment, the only kind of support I think they might be receiving, apart from the general support from, from GPs and, and obviously the support from non-healthcare professionals or non-healthcare periods, such as the support from their families and friends, the kind of medical support they receive at the moment, if they are um, lucky enough, is, is access to a long COVID clinic. And those are great, uh, but those are um, often overbooked and they're not, uh, I believe, not everywhere in the country. So so that's the kind of support they're receiving at the moment. Now, I, I hope that the sort of um, discoveries that we're making as part of CFOG will help create uh, further enthusiasm, if there, if there needs to be any, to test interventions in randomized control trials so that yeah. in the months to come we will have interventions that are specifically 
um, targeting the kind of uh, the kind of problems that those people might have. And so you, you could speculate of, of the kind of treatment that might come out of of the study that um, that that uh, and the findings that we've had. Obviously, anticoagulant seems to be an obvious candidate. Yeah. Um, I certainly don't encourage anybody to take an anticoagulant at this moment to prevent um, brain fog before we do any any further randomized studies. But this is the kind of things that might emerge from from those findings. But there's another, perhaps just as important. Um, consequence or, poten or potential treatment, potential treatment approach for those people. Um, and this is, I guess, what we might call cognitive rehab. So we yeah. know that when people have a stroke, um, they might recover the function of their arm and their legs by doing a lot of intensive rehabilitation with physiotherapists and occupational therapists. And they recover the function. That's because of the magic of the plasticity of the brain. And, and so there was a possibility that the same could apply to cognition. And that by um, offering um, um, to people with, with um, uh, existing cognitive problems to do the sort of intense brain exercise, mm -hmm. um, they might well recover a, a big part of their, their, their cognitive function. Yeah. And again, this is this is to be shown in 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 proper randomized control studies. Uh, but if this is the case, then that if, if this is indeed effective, then that would be a fantastic news for those patients. Yeah, and indeed, I assume there must be some possibilities that the findings in your research can be generalizable potentially to other brain-related presentations or conditions. Uh, so some, well, not in its entirety, but what you're learning from the COVID stuff must be generalizable to some degree. Well, that, that would be even better news. Yeah. <laughs> uh, again, that, that needs to be that needs to be tested. But but I agree on the general point that I think COVID nineteen has rightly so received a lot of attention with the latest technologies um, available, big data, very interesting randomized control trial designs, um, uh, very fast paced research, very um, multidisciplinary and, and and collaborative research. And hopefully, a lot of a lot of that will be carried forward for um, um, to answer other other health problems and health challenges, yeah. and perhaps some some findings will be translatable to to other diseases as, as well. well. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, indeed. Right. So we talked about the the COVID, the brain fog stuff, and the is there anything else apart from you've described obviously what the next steps are in the brain fog study? But just going back a second to the the bigger data linkage stuff. So I assume that those samples you've published on previously, you'll you'll continue to follow them up, yeah, over longer periods. Yeah, I think I think I think we we ought to do that, and that's because we know that some infections might have very protracted and long-lasting effects on on the brain. Um, there's been there's been recently the uh, the uh, incredible findings of the link between EBV and um, and uh, and MS. Um, this is fascinating, but this requires very long follow-up um, studies and very careful study designs. And yeah. so we probably should should do the same for for COVID nineteen. I think one of the advantages of the the FOSP, the COVID FOSP study starting. Um, so early on is getting those because in many because what's a sample size is, is ginormous, isn't it? <laughs> so it depends how you define it, but they have they have I think about between six and seven thousand people in total that uh, have taken part in the study, and then two thousand of them, just over two thousand of them, have been followed up at six months, and many of them have been followed up at twelve twelve months as well. And out of the six or seven thousand, some of them are agreeing to be recontacted as well um, uh, for further studies, which is what we have done for the cognitive. Um, yeah. Test that we've been running. 
so so yes it, i mean and i, I can say it um without uh, losing any humanity because i wasn't part of the first first covid study but this is a remarkable study i mean yeah. the, the 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 amount of information and insights and discoveries it allows us um, as a community to to, to generate is is absolutely remarkable. Yeah, indeed. Okay, so we're sort of coming towards the end. There's two sort of last segments of the podcast. But again, we're, what we're all because this is obviously a mental health research podcast. If you had all the money in the world, and somebody said you write, here's all the money in the world to answer this unanswered question, what would that unanswered question be? That's a great. That's a great. That's a great question because there will be there would be many, as I'm sure. And it's not your... you're not allowed to say COVID. I know. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, well, I, I suspect being able to identify some addressable causes of of mental illness uh, in a very robust way, whatever that be might be. So it might be psychosis, which is a, um, a probably a, a good contender. But being able to identify what is actually causing it, um, and that can be that can be treated. I mean, we're seeing exciting um, um, research being done in. Um, autoimmune encephalitis, for instance, and yes, it's not going to be the cause for all psychosis, but it's going to be it's going to be the cause for some psychosis. And the fact that we are this is a cause that we can address um, is absolutely phenomenal. So, being able to 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 identify such mechanisms for um, many more mental illnesses, I think, would be would be great. So, if I had all the money in the world, I would throw a lot of money in, into into that and trying to identify those reversible causes, and not just biological, now be psychological and social causes. Well, because because if if we tackled inequality. That would wipe out there we go <laughs> whatever percentage of mental illness in the world so but no i like that's a really that's a great answer and then okay so that any is that that's your last is that your last pitch for saving the world that's my last pitch for saving the world yeah. <laughs> okay so then our last question a couple of questions are a bit more sort of reflective one or two guests at your dinner party living or dead famous or not famous who comes to mind? So I guess a generic person, but not not, not that generic. But uh, I'd like to have, I always like to have great conversation about people who are passionate about mental health, but who are not in mental health fields. And so, because I, I think that's where that's where the best research and, and the best innovation in mental health comes from is, is because it's so fundamentally multidisciplinary. And so people who have an interest in mental health and work in economics, or work in math, work in social sciences, uh, work in art, and um, I think those are, uh, I think some of them, some of my best and, and most profound encounters I've had through my life. So, so that so there would be somebody like that, but I can't yeah, name yeah, them because good. obviously they don't they don't have necessarily a name. That, that should be that should be number one. And I'm not sure that that would be a number two in it. It's a fair. It's an unfair question because you just sort of put you on. I, I do like contrarian people because I think they do teach us a lot. I'm not, I don't necessarily consider myself contrarian at all, but and I, I do I do find them um, um, great people to, to speak to. So people who have fundamentally contrarian ideas, um, yeah. and uh, and and again, so that's a, another generic person, but somebody with contrarian ideas um, and and an interest in mental health. Uh, would be would be at the table as well, and that would be a fantastic dinner. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's 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 a great answer. Actually, good without specifying an individual, the type of person um, or type of people. Uh, you're right. I think it would be a great conversation. And then our last one then is again reflecting on what you've learned in between. What advice would you give your 16 year old self? 
I mean, I, I would hate to be so generic as to say follow your dreams because that would be just way too way too cliched. But um, I think there's truth in that is to say just try to explore something that's not been necessarily explored before. I think that um, that is that is always a good idea. And whereas it was kind of an accident for me to end up in medicine after doing engineering, I'd probably give you advice to just make that accident again um, because it's been it's been a fascinating journey and uh, an ongoing journey. So. Um, yeah, I, I think you know, do, do 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 go for don't 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 calculate too much. Just go for what seems right at the time, and then and then you know connect the dot later on. I think that sounds like great advice. Yeah, no, that's good. Really good, really good advice, actually. And but actually, just something which just struck me, which I remember reading before we come on the podcast was so when in your pre medicine medicine conversion, you were mostly when you were an engineer, you developed an, an app. Did you a mental health was it a mental health app? So and then so how come you haven't become become the next Mark Zuckerberg? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's very difficult to make money with an app. <laughs> um, no, we 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 did develop an app uh, with with friends. So we were all in Boston uh, in the US, and um, so it was um, in Boston as well. That's where he was. <laughs> that's right and we're all belgians though so there was uh there was, there was more more beers um involved but um we, we we met and we discussed the idea of developing an app that would allow us to measure in sort of an ex, um, um, uh, experience sampling type of way people's mood and uh, and the behavior on a day-to-day basis it was 2012 so it was kind of cool to develop an app at the time and um, and we thought you know we were young and, and ambitious and we thought let's let's just do it and and it turned out to be more successful than we imagined. So the um, the app was used on a, on a French TV reality TV channel yeah. um, or TV show, and and then it was advertised on the on, on that on their web page. And so sixty thousand people turned up and started downloading the app and and um, and reporting on their mood and their and their behavior. And we're still we're still using that uh, the data now. So if any of the uh, the people listening uh, to, to to the podcast are interested in 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 um, getting into this uh, this data, and there's there's probably plenty of of questions that we can still answer with that um, that we haven't answered yet. So, excellent. I'm glad I remembered that before the podcast ended because I was on my list of uh, many said at the start of the po- the podcast. So I'm glad I remembered at the end. Anyway, Max, thanks a million from Craig and I for your time and uh, really best luck with ongoing work on on the brain fog and hopefully the next steps also on continuing sort of to sense the linkage work on, on the impacts, ongoing impacts of COVID-19. So thanks a million and hope the listeners find that of interest and you'll find details of, of Max on the University of Oxford website. All the very best. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. MQ Open Mind is presented by MQ Mental Health Research, the only organization that exclusively invests into scientific research around mental health. Our vision is to create a world where mental illnesses are understood, effectively treated, and one day prevented. Please leave us a review and let us know what you think about the podcast. Each review helps us reach a wider audience. Visit mqmentalhealth.org to learn more about MQ and mental health research.